Should we only blame crooked politicians and the Zuma government for state capture? What about private companies who also benefited and sometimes even enabled state capture? Ethel Williams, a former partner with Bain Capital, a US-based company, blew the whistle on Bain's involvement in state capture, and he explains in detail how Bain's work enabled the looting of state resources. He also says why he believes it's time to increase the pressure on big business for their part in the state of our country. I'm Ilse Saltzvedel for Alta, and my guest today is Ethel Williams. Ethel, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Although you are currently probably best known as the man who had the courage to step aside from a well-paying job and instead blow the whistle on your former employers, a global business giant, you are so much more. You are a well-known, award-winning poet, a social activist and academic. Please tell us a bit more about yourself. Really great to be here, Ilsa. Thank you. Yes, um, that's true. I have been a poet um, for many years. I've published five books. I've won a number of uh, poetry awards. And most of my poetry, in fact, is around social justice, um, looking at our society and feeling as an artist and a poet that I felt the responsibility to at least highlight those areas that needed uh, focus in our country, poverty, gender-based violence, uh, and corruption. So uh, my work is sort of worked around this, these areas of injustice in our country for a long time. I, my academic work is in ethics. So again, thinking quite carefully about uh, ethics, both in business, but also ethics in our broader society. Mm-hmm. And then largely, um, lastly, um, I am a adv- social advocate. I, you know, I started an NGO uh, seven years ago focused on youth literacy, because I felt that youth literacy was a big problem in our country but also people in poorer communities um, needed, I felt, uh, inspiration. Because for me, I grew up on the Cape Flats. I grew up in a township. I went to government schools, but yet was able to eventually earn five master's degrees from five of the world's top universities. And I, I apportioned some of that to just feeling inspired to want to do something great, to live a life of excellence. And so in our youth literacy work, we try and bring that message across to people that literally, no matter where you grow up or where you start out, um, you can actually live a life that's meaningful. Um, so, so my social activist work also has been, on the one hand, trying to break down the forces that, that constrain people to live great lives. So whether it's corruption or, or um, unethical, improper behavior, uh, or just lack of commitment from our institutions to do the right thing, but also trying to inspire and enable people to live better lives. I just want to stop at this very interesting fact. Five master's degrees from five globally top-ranked universities. You started your studies at uh, the University of Witwatersrand with the BSc. Then you went on to MIT, Sloan School of Management. London Business School for another uh, master's degree in finance, University of Oxford for a master's degree in political theory, Harvard University for an MBA, and then an MSc at the London School of Economics and Political Science. 
And while I'm mentioning that, it's very inspiring, but it also shows the kind of man that people thought they could actually mess with. And that is at the heart of this whole talk today is you were basically brought in to fix things at Bain, uh, who were caught in the spotlight of state capture. And what amazes me is that they thought that they could pull the wool over your eyes. Why do you think was that? I think that's exactly right, Ilsa. I think they made a bet, a conscious bet that went very wrong for them. Uh, I think some background there might be useful. So I've got a long history with Bain. I actually joined Bain in their global head office in Boston in 1995. And over the years, I've worked with Bain in the US, in the UK, and here in South Africa. In fact, I was a partner at Bain uh, up until 2010, when I left because of my ethical concerns about the, the, the boss they brought in, um, this Vittorio Massone, where they brought it from Italy. So I knew back in 2010 already there was possibly going to be a problem, so much so that I resigned from a very lucrative partnership in Bain. Over the years, from 2010 up until 2018, I stayed in contact with the, with the firm. Uh, you know, these were people I'd um, grown up with. They were my friends. Uh, they were my mentors. And so while I had objections to what was happening in South Africa, I, I still maintained my relationships globally with the Bain people. So when 2018 came along, when Bain was called into the Nugent Commission, and it then became clear that something had gone very wrong, the first thing I did was actually send an email to Masone's boss, who was in London, um, and effectively saying, I told you so. Uh, I foresaw this coming because the moment I met someone who, by my assessment, um, lacked the ethical leadership that I think a business needs, um, you know, I, I, I raised the red flag to Bain globally. And the fact that they kept him in the business, in my mind, meant they endorsed him. And they endorsed his behavior. So 2018 comes along, crisis happens. I uh, send an email to Masoni's boss saying, hey, told you so, but if I can help, um, here I am willing to help. And of course, by this time, I not only had all the experience, you know, over 20 years of management consulting experience and business experience, but I'd also gone and retrained as a business ethics expert. I've gone and retrained in, in political philosophy, in moral philosophy, in political theory. So I could uniquely combine my deep knowledge of Bain's business and Bain's industry with um, real rigorous thinking around corporate governance and ethics. So it seemed quite perfect, actually, for me to, to go in and help them because of my combination of these expertise. What is important, Ilsa, at that point was I made it absolutely clear to Bain in writing what my priorities were going to be. Uh, and I called it a hierarchy of interest. I said to them, I will come and help you. But let's be absolutely clear. My in number one interest is South Africa. So I'm going to do what is right for South Africa. Secondly, I'll do what's right for me. And thirdly, I'll do what's right for Bain. And the reason I made that very explicit was I understood that if they were involved um, directly or indirectly in state capture, there were going to be tensions and trade-offs to be made. 
in terms of what the right thing meant. And I wanted them to be clear that I meant, when I say the right thing, it was the right thing for South Africa, not the right thing for Bay. And in, in your, in ideal world, those things should be aligned. But if they were not going to be aligned, that, that was going to be my stance. Uh, just to take to your point about the, the bet they had made, I think, I think the long-term bet they made was they said, look, we know Athol's an ethical person. We've known him for a long time. It's going to be very useful for us to say, look, we've got this ethical guy in our business now. So to give all the right appearances. Um, but we still believe Athol's loyalty will trump his ethics. And we believe if we wave big enough carrots in front of him in terms of money, it will trump his ethical position. And that's obviously the bet they got wrong. Please tell listeners to the Outer Podcast more about Bain and how they were implicated in state capture before we continue with the rest of the conversation. The Bain are one of the preeminent management consulting firms in the world. They're based in the U.S., offices in over 50 countries. Quite a phenomenal business. You know, I'm proud of my association with Bain. Bain typically employs quite smart, hardworking people who help organizations think through some of their organizational challenges, bringing some facts to bear to help them solve those problems. So used by most CEOs around the world to help the executive solve business problems. That's what Bain does at their best. At their worst, Bain has powerful tools that in the wrong hands could be used as weapons. And I think that's what's happened. Bain allowed at um, SARS and in South Africa allowed their expertise to be weaponized. So the accusations um, against Bain at SARS was that Bain went into SARS by my testimony with a pre-planned, a pre-existing plan to restructure SARS. Now, as I said at the Zondo Commission, restructuring an organization is the absolute last thing you do to solve a business problem because restructuring means you break things that exist you break the way the business works, you break relationships between people, and you then reattach them, you re reorganize them, presumably to create a better organization. Now, Ilsa, there's no one in the world who would claim that SARS was so broken that it needed to be restructured. May I ask so, you, sorry, Athol, may I just interrupt you and ask you to give us the timeline of this was this restructuring, at what point did they feel that SARS needed restructuring? Does it coincide with the Tomoyani era? Uh, it's perfect, perfectly aligned with the Tomoyani era. So Which we all know Tom now, looking back, was part of a bigger plan to really just um, capture all important state institutions. Exactly. And I'd love to come to that because I had evidence of that and I testified about that as well. So just on the Tomoyani question, Tomoyani became head of SARS in September 2014, two months later, he issues a, an RFP uh, for consulting firms to come and help him restructure SARS. He'd been working with Bain for a year already by that point, developing plans for a restructuring of SARS. And so my view is, no matter what the question was, the answer was going to be restructuring with Bain's help. Okay, just for listeners not up to speed with this topic, uh, where was Tomoyani brought in from? Was he previously in SARS? No. So previously, Tomoyani had no experience uh, in a tax agency anywhere. He worked at uh, correctional services. 
he was, as far as I know, the head of correctional services. There was a period where he was unemployed. He worked as an advisor at CETA, the state IT agency. Mm -hmm. So for him to be appointed as the SARS commissioner, there was no indication that he had any expertise that he could bring to bear in that organization. Um, in fact, in fact, Moyani himself, in his responding affidavit to my affidavit to the Zonda Commission, says that the president told him, um, even before the uh, recruitment process started for the new commissioner, that President Zuma told him he would be the new SARS commissioner. And he followed in the footsteps of... Opa Magashule. Sorry, I, I might have his surname wrong. Okay, but the point I'm trying to make is he came into a well-functioning SARS took over and immediately appointed Bain to come and help restructure the organization. Am I summarizing it correctly? Oh, that's absolutely right. SARS, by every measure, was a well-functioned organization admired by tax agencies around the world for how well it was run. It might have needed tweaks here and there like every organization needs, but what it did not need absolutely was a restructuring. And that's exactly what Tom Yani and Bain did. So to come back to your previous point, you said no matter what the problem was, Moyani decided Bain was the solution. What did they come and do in SARS? Um, Ilsa, just before I touch on that, can I just quickly run through some of the irregularities? Yes, yeah, of course. I think if you look at the procurement process, it again points to this idea that no matter what, Moyani wanted Bain in the organization. And the reason he wanted them, two reasons, I think. One was... I think, obviously, Bain had helped Moyani prepare this plan for the restructuring even before either of them got to SARS. But secondly, Bain and Moyani was part of the Zuma alliance. There was the state capture group that met and planned a number of restructurings. And so, of course, Bain had to be inside SARS to implement this. In my testimony, I revealed that Bain had actually drafted the RFP that um, SARS later issued to the market. It was not an open tender process. It was a closed tender process, which meant Bain and, and SARS could pick who Bain was going to bid against. So Bain wrote the rules of the game and then chose their competitors to make sure they won. SARS went to great lengths to try and actually avoid a, a tender process. Uh, so they tried a number of maneuvers to try and get Bain in without a tender. And I think just the last point on this tendering and this contracting when Bain was eventually appointed, Ilsa, they were appointed for a six-week project at 3 million rand, or just under 3 million rand. In the end, Bain were there for two and a half years, earning 164 million rand without ever going back to a tender, back to the market. And that just shows how they took a six-week contract, maneuvered internally, and extended it for over two years. Who was heading up Bain South Africa at that point, or did it all fall under Mazzoni? Yeah, so, so Mazzoni was the head of the South African business. Okay, okay. So what you are saying here is, firstly, the procurement process was completely ignored. It wasn't just flawed. It seemed like it was um, ignored. They were pre-planning to capture SARS. Lots of public money was wasted in the process, 164 million rand. And then they bring you in to come and smooth things over as soon as they were exposed. How did things go wrong for Bain from that point onwards? Well, they, I think the first thing that shocked them was how smart the Nugent Commission was. So Judge Nugent and advocate Carol Steinberg ripped them to pieces 
in in that Bain had a very smooth explanation for everything. They met for many hours with PR experts, with legal experts, uh, preparing Masoni for his testimony. And they were shocked by what was then exposed because the Nugent Commission was able to get to the core issues. So literally after Masoni's testimony, there was massive panic within Bain globally, not just in South Africa, but globally, because suddenly they had been exposed. And I fully believe they thought I could help them with their cover-up plan. Because it's at that point then that they hire the law firm Baker McKenzie. Now, Baker McKenzie might not be a big name in South Africa, but they are the world's second largest law firm. So Bain literally brought in the big guns. They, at their peak, had 60 lawyers, 6-0 lawyers of Baker McKenzie and Bain's lawyers working on this case. They claim then to conduct an independent investigation. Now, Ilsa, we don't have to be legal experts. We just need some common sense here, right? So Bain claimed that Baker McKenzie were conducting an independent investigation. But at the same time, Baker McKenzie are Bain's legal advisors. And on their payroll with 60 lawyers. And on their payroll, absolutely. So this was a core of my fight. So Bain brought me in in September 2018. My role was to oversee the Baker McKenzie investigation. What that meant was I would get to see the evidence that Baker McKenzie collects. I was able to have conversations and meetings with the Baker McKenzie investigators. And if I didn't like anything, I was free to go and speak to Judge Nugent about it. So it was quite a good structure that we had set up because I had said to them, I was not going to do this just internally and quietly. I needed to have a public mandate. And so I had many email exchanges with Judge Nugent and meetings with him as well. I also wrote a report um, at the end of my oversight role. It was an interim report and a final report. And what I discovered in playing that oversight role back in 2018 already was that Bain was withholding significant information about what really went on. And I know this because they tried to manipulate me. They tried to deceive me, the very person they brought in to supposedly oversee their investigation. I'll give you an example. I was meant to offer an opinion on whether Bain was reporting to Judge Nugent truthfully. And the process was going to be Baker McKenzie were going to produce a report of their findings, which is what you'd expect. I was going to look at this report and then say, based on what I've seen and heard, this report they are, they are, they are submitting to Judge Nugent is truthful, a truthful report. Well, in the end, they refused to let me see their investigation report. So they produce a very expensive, supposedly extensive report, and you as the big chief cannot see the report. Exactly. As a matter of interest, what job title did they give to you? So I, I had two different roles. Um, actually, there were three different roles. In 2018, I was there as providing independent oversight. Mm-hmm. I was a contractor providing independent oversight. Later on, um, and we'll get to that, later on, I actually joined, rejoined Bain as a partner on a part-time basis to okay. drive the remedy and the, the amends I thought they needed to make. But just going back to this period when I was meant to be an oversight um, and being independent, they wouldn't let me see the report. 
They then tell me, actually, look, we'll read the report to you on the phone, and then you can say you saw the report. And of course, I'm not going to go for that. That's just a lie. They then say to me, okay, let me see the report, but I can't print it or, or take a copy of it. And it just gives you a sense of the games these guys were playing, right? So these, again, are driven by Baker McKenzie, driven by Bain. They, they, in the end, did not submit a report to the Nugent Commission, despite them claiming they were going to be open and transparent. And in the end, during that period, they did not show me their, their report. This is my conclusion in my report, um, my independent oversight report, was very clear that Bain was withholding information from me and from the Nugent Commission and had raised serious doubts about their sincerity about doing the right thing in South Africa. So how much do you think this report cost them? They've spent on their lawyers since the Nugent Commission probably 100 million rand. Can you tell us what you think they hid from South Africans? I think what they hid, Ilsa, was not focused on, on SARS. What they hid and still hiding is, as you said earlier, the extensive involvement at other SOEs and across our government. So what, what hasn't been spoken about much at all is Bain's involvement at Telcom, for example. Just as they did with Mayani, what they call CEO coaching, they also did for Sipo Maseko at Telcom. Bain had met with Jacob Zuma and Sipo Moseko and Jabu Mabuza, the former um, chairman of Telcom. Uh, and later on, together. the chair of the board at ESCO. Exactly. So even before Maseko became CEO of Telcom, he had met extensively with Bain and had met with Bain and Zuma together. So the exact same model we saw at SARS was replicated at Telcom. I've presented evidence to the Zondo Commission showing that Masoni wrote to his boss saying that the Telcom RFP that Bain responded to to get the work was, in quotes, designed for us. So sure. there's Masoni admitting that the, the, the tender process was designed for Bain. After the investigations were underway, the lead partner of Baker McKenzie Daryl Bernstein, uh, said to me, he's less worried about SARS, actually. He's far more worried about telecom because that's more problematic and more embarrassing for Bain. So the first answer to your question, what are they hiding, is they're not hiding what happened at SARS because that's pretty, pretty known right now. They're hiding what happened at telecom, what happened at ESCOM, what happened at PIC, what happened at IDC, what happened at the African Union, what happened at SAA. That's what they're hiding. And then they are hiding the details of their massive restructuring of our government and sectors that they discussed with Jacob Zuma. So an example, very clear detailed plans were produced of how between Zuma and Bain, they were going to consolidate government procurement into one place. Now imagine this, you want to loot, you've got to go to different government departments, different SOEs, if you want to loot. Yeah, and work through that, different procurement offices and offices, and hopefully somebody somewhere will catch a thief. But if it all happens centrally... You've got no chance of catching that thief. So these were not ideas. These were documents. And I've seen those documents and, and submitted them as evidence. Documents planning to centralize government procurement. Now, for me, that is a frightening, frightening thought. 
They also design things like a special delivery agency. So this is Bain and Zuma. A delivery agency, which would be a separate unit outside of, of cabinet and the executive, reporting directly to Jacob Zuma with powers that would allow them to change budgets in government departments, um, speed up um, execution of projects. Basically, it was you know, a Zuma hit team that he could direct and go and influence what is happening in government departments. Now, Ilsa, this is what I say. We must separate Bain from all the other state capture people. Let's not put them all in the same bucket because McKinsey, KPMG, Deloitte, all the others were part of the execution of the looting. They were executing on plans that were developed and designed somewhere else. Bain was Jacob Zuma's consultants of choice. He Why do you spend... think that is? I want to get to the bottom of that as well. We all think of Zuma as not too bright, but then we hear evidence like this, and you can well think that there was a very, very well executed campaign that started way before uh, he actually became president. I, you know, I've only met him um, for three seconds once. Uh, this is Jacob Zuma, so I've got no direct experience of his level of intelligence um, and and smarts, etc. Listening to other people speak, and my read of the situation is, um, you know, there are different types of intelligence. There's intelligence of a nerd like me who reads a lot of books and studies a lot of degrees. And then I think there's there's street smarts. Mm. And I think that's what Jacob Zuma's got. He might not be able to work out the strategies and the finances and things himself, but he gets people to do that stuff for him. And I think he's, he's got a way of dangling carrots in front of people and waving sticks behind people. Mm. And I think the way he was able to control very powerful people in our country was by that combination of stick and carrot. And so you know, even the documents that Bain produced, I don't think Jacob Zuma himself could comprehend the, the detail there. And I mean no disrespect. Mm. I'm just thinking it's so, so, so complex. But he understood what would happen, what the implications were going to be, right? And he needed an organization with Bain's expertise to again provide the veneer of legitimacy of everything that was going on. Plus, he wanted an organization with, with fluid ethics, basically, right? He wanted an organization that were willing to go along with his plan in the way he wants to do it. Now, here we get to look at the persona of Masoni, right? He comes from Italy, um, from Bain's Milan office, which has got massive history of, of really improper behavior. And mafia-like um, influences, I suppose. Yeah, just, just my read of it was the idea of governance and corporate governance and um, working with politicians was just you know, a normal thing for them. Mm. Um, governance didn't matter. And this was my concern with Masoni back in 2010 already. So it, it, was, it was a match made uh, you know, in heaven for, for both Zuma and for, for Bain. Now, here again, Ilsa, Bain and now are claiming that Masoni was a lone rogue, right? And you see this happen at every company where things go wrong. At McKinsey, they've said this. Steinhoff, they've said this. And it's this simple argument that, you know, there was one bad apple. They messed it all up. We've now got rid of the bad apple. So everything is fine. And that is absolute nonsense. I wanted to ask you about this. Somebody that powerful cannot act on his own. Am I right? Absolutely. 
Um, and none of these organizations act, um, any, no one acts in a vacuum in any of these organizations. So I went to great detail to show evidence of how Masoni's bosses, all the way up to global head office, knew what he was doing. They knew about the contract he had entered into with a third party. It was Bain paid this third party to introduce them to politicians, particularly to introduce them to Jacob Zuma. So all the way up to global head office, they knew this stuff. All the way up to global head office, they knew he was meeting with, with Jacob Zuma. Um, and I've, you know, I've made a big song and dance about this, that having been at Bain for many years and in consulting for many years, there is no reason for a management consultant to ever meet with the president of any country. One meeting maybe because, you know, to, to, to meet and greet and to understand Maybe a courtesy other. sort of meeting. Look, I'm working in but, your country, but not a regular type of meeting. Exactly. And then you say up to 20 times behind closed doors. Um, and by, what I mean by behind closed doors is these meetings were not formally in either party's diaries. The meetings happen at the president's home. And Bain's explanation for those meetings were that they were marketing meetings. And, you know, even Judge Zondo laughed when I said that um, at the testimony. Why do you need 20 meetings to do marketing to the president of the country mm. when you're mm. a management consulting business? And it's so, not like you need to sell your services. You already are the service provider. Yeah. So I think, Ilsa, this is what they were hiding. They were hiding the fact that they were Jacob Zuma's consultant of choice because they were quite willing to be flexible on governance and ethics. They were willing to go ahead with the plans. They'd form this alliance. And so wherever Zuma wanted them to go, they would go. That's why I thought, felt even, even it was shocking that they were working at the African Union where Dlamini Zuma was obviously the chair. Masoni walked around the Bain offices saying she's the future president of South Africa. So... Even Bain had made this close political bet that said, work with Zuma and Lamini Zuma, so she becomes president. I want to know this. What was in it for Bain? And what were in it for politicians like Zuma? I think there are two reasons for state capture. I think money absolutely is the, the biggest driver. I think there's continued power as well. So for the politicians, it, it, it secured their alliance with the Zuma camp. A lot of business people also were in the Zuma camp. And so being part of the state capture project ensured that we continue to be part of this patronage network. But the money was the big driver. For Bain, again, we focus on their 164 million rand at SARS, which they returned. That's not where the focus should be. The focus should be on two areas. One, the up to 2 billion they earned at the other SOEs, which they haven't paid back. And the multiple billions they would have earned with all of the restructuring plans that they put forward to the president. They were going to restructure our entire energy sector, which would have been you know, decades of consulting for Bain. They were going to restructure our entire ICT sector, which would have been decades of consulting for Bain. So that's what was in it for Bain, billions of rands of fees. And this is why Bain celebrated Masoni. Here's the strange thing, Ilsa. As much as Bain are now saying, you know, Masoni was, was unethical. At their global partner meeting, when all of the partners around the world got together, they called Masoni up on stage. He was this model, model leader in their business. In the Johannesburg office, two months before Masoni's testimony, before the Nugent Commission, they gave him a standing ovation because he was this great leader. So 
They knew what he was doing. They knew what was what was happening, and they celebrated it. Uh, in terms of world uh, exposure for Bain, how big was the South African account compared to the other countries? It sounds like South Africa was the money maker for them. It's in overall terms and in, and in dollar terms, it um, it wasn't the majority of the business, but it did um, produce huge profits. So and long-term expectations. But I think that's what that's what it was. So the plan hadn't fully delivered or it could yet. That was still coming. So it was known in South Africa to be a partner in South Africa was one of the most lucrative positions to have because you, you charge these huge fees in dollars and your expenses were in rands. Um, and so profit per partner for South Africa was amongst the highest. I want to move to the exact moment you started feeling very uncomfortable with working for Bain and with Bain. What was the sort of final straw? And did they try to buy your silence or keep you within the company? How did things play out? So the process was as follows. After I had submitted my report at the end of 2018 and said to Bain and to Judge Nugent, there are real problems here. Uh, Bain's response to my report was, and I quote, it makes for uncomfortable reading. Um, a few weeks later, they basically said to me, um, we like your recommendations in your report. So I'd written in my report recommendations that said, Bain has done things wrong. If they wanted to fix it, here's what they could do. And it's on that basis then they said to me, why don't you come into the business and help us implement those things you identified as ways to fix things? Um, I had assurance from all the partners in South Africa. I had assurance from the global managing partner, the head of Bain globally, that they were now sincerely wanting to do the right thing. So come in again, Ethel, help us drive this change. Now, what happened in that process, I'd insisted then, if I was going to drive this change, I needed to see everything that Bain had. And they were just simply not willing to do that. So even as a partner within their business, they were still not willing to let me see anything. You know, I asked, for example, Baker McKenzie had interviewed a whole bunch of Bain partners, uh, including my Sony, for multiple days. And I said I wanted to see those notes, those interview notes, uh, to see what they had to say. And those were refused. I couldn't see the notes. I'd wanted to see the Baker McKenzie investigations again. And again, they refused. I wanted to talk about state capture. And Bain insisted on talking only about SARS. So basically wanted to ignore these broader issues that had been involved in. And I grew more and more uncomfortable. I began sending emails to all the global leaders. I began having discussions at meetings saying, we're not having the right conversation. We are not talking about state capture. And um, it got to a point, Ilsa, where I just you know, began banging the desk so many times of saying, I need to see everything I've asked for, and we need to have the right conversation about state capture. And they refused on both those, those accounts to the point where I just said, I can't keep staying here because now I felt I'd be complicit. Because up until that point, I still felt I could make a difference for South Africa and to get Bain to do the right thing. But you know, late in August 2019, it became clear to me Bain were not going to do the right thing. And so for them, it was very clear to me I stayed, I'd be complicit. Uh, and so I made a very quick decision to leave. And you know, to your question, absolutely. They we spent months of them trying to buy my silence. Uh, it started quite constructively with me saying, I still think you guys owe South Africa a massive debt. So 
Um, one, one proposal, for example, was I said, I want to set up an independent research institute that can help South Africa understand state capture, help companies improve and fix what they've done in our country. And I wanted Bain to fund that. So that was one example of still engaging with them quite constructively. But through all our discussions, the one thing they stuck to was that I could never speak about Bain in public. Now, there was just no way I was going to settle for that. It got to the point where during these negotiations, I, got, I became very afraid for my safety because they kept telling me about my legal obligations and my ethical obligations. And they kept saying that if it's went to court, they'd be very aggressive with me. And so at one point, I even considered, like seriously considered, um, taking a deal with them, believing that I could create this institute that would actually do some good in South Africa. But in the end, the condition was still that I needed to be absolutely silent. I couldn't speak about any of the evidence I'd seen. And I just couldn't do that. The last straw really was when they made me a cash offer where they said there'll be no strings attached, just money into my account if I stay quiet. And of course, I rejected that as well. May I ask how much money they offered you? The full package was 9 million rand, but the, the cash without strings attached was going to be 5 million rand cash. That's serious money if you have nothing to hide. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, add to that the hundred million they're paying their lawyers. Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's the, that's the thing, uh, also. And Bain keeps putting out these press statements saying Athel Williams is lying. We reject what he's saying. And I keep saying, okay, fine. Let's assume Athel Williams is a liar. He's put forward a story. Bain, show us your counter story. Show us hmm. your facts. If Williams is lying. But all they are doing is just attacking my personality and trying to discredit me. As we know, they even applied to the Zonda Commission to have half of my evidence redacted because they're trying to hide those things. But that wasn't successful. Yeah, I think they were advised there was no way that the commission was going to allow that. They then said, oh, well, Williams is lying. We'll prove it under cross-examination. And um, they still haven't fully applied for cross-examination. In fact, I'm told by some people are close to the facts that Bain have actually withdrawn their application to cross-examine me. Because again, I think their lies are going to be exposed. I need you to speak to our supporters and to South Africans in general about the blame that we need to put on somebody for state capture. We keep on saying it's governing party and it's government, but we really should seriously start talking about big corporates and the part they played in basically stealing our country. I think they were intimately involved in the efforts to steal our country. Big corporates, the big banks, the law firms, the accounting firms have all either been directly involved or have supported those who are directly involved. Um, government could not do or the ANC could not do what they did without the support, the direct support and, 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 and enablement of our private sector. All the dodgy contracts went to private companies. Um, all the dodgy reports and investigations were done by the private sector. This is the not corrupt an money issue. was received by private banks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is not an ANC issue or a government issue. It's, it's across the leadership of our, of our society, actually, who have sat by either doing nothing or supported or actively were involved in this. And I think this is an important thing, Ilse. You know, in my, at the end of my testimony to the Zonda Commission, I said what we needed to do in our country was move from this era of the bully 
an era of fear and unaccountability to the era of the brave. And what I meant by this era of the brave was, I think we need South Africans across the entire spectrum, from ordinary citizens to activists, to business leaders, to politicians, to begin to stand up at personal risk to, to change, stop this wave of corruption. Because we all act rationally, right? So people I speak to say, Ethel, we admire what you've done. You're so lucky you could do it. I could never do it. And I say, why could you never do it? Well, because I've got a family and I can't afford to lose my job. And I say, I've got a family and I can't afford to lose my job either. But if no one stands up, if we all say, well, I must protect my job, my family, then no one will ever do anything to fight this corruption. And Judge Zonda himself has said, half of the evidence that the commission has is thanks to whistleblowers. So there are people standing up at great risk to themselves. Um, Why are more of us not doing that? And even if you feel you can't stand up yourself, then you should be supporting those who are standing. And in fact, that's not happening. What was the cost of blowing the whistle? I want you to, to tell listeners what you lost, security threats, financial problems. And I also want to ask you, how can we help as society? So to take the first question, Elsa, my life is unrecognizable now compared to two years ago before I blew the whistle. So my life has been ruined. I had the perfect career two years ago. I was a part-time partner at a global management consulting firm. My salary on a part-time basis was 6 million rand a year, part-time. And then I worked part-time at UCT as a senior lecturer. By my measure, I had this perfect career, very well paid. I was going to help the country repair from state capture. And I was teaching business ethics at UCT, teaching our business leaders and public leaders how to make ethical decisions. Perfect career. I've now lost that. My health has been devastated in the last two years. I've never experienced levels of depression that I've felt. And the depression comes from this constant anxiety, right? I live in fear. I live in anxiety because I don't know what the future holds. You know, I, I implicated 39 powerful people, 39 in my testimony. I'm worried that some of them are going to sue me. So I've got no idea what the future holds in terms of lawsuits and in terms of me being found wanting, you know, I was worried about defamation. I was worried about um, breaking confidentiality, right? Bain have said they reserve the right to actually sue me for that. So there's massive uncertainty from a legal standpoint. There's worry about from a, from a safety standpoint. My health has been deteriorated so badly. I'm now on multiple medications. I'm now seeking counseling. Um, my family have taken major strain. And so it's devastating. It really is devastating. And I think I've come off much better than many other whistleblowers. I'm fortunate that I had some savings. And so I'm not starving. But pretty soon that's going to run out, right? As I have to fund multiple lawsuits as they start coming. And it makes no sense, right? For me, the world seems upside down when someone steps out with absolutely nothing to gain, but in the interest of our society. And then it's that very society that then turns their back on you. I've had so many appeals. I've been the radio, on TV, the newspaper, appealing for support, going to law firms, going to businesses, and I've got absolutely nothing back. The only lawyers I've got right now are pro bono lawyers organized by a foreign NGO, not even a South African NGO. So um, if you say you're going out appealing to people to help, do you mean stuff like 
uh, legal advice or more physical stuff like financial support? So, yes, those two. Um, so initially when I blew the whistle, no law firm would help me because they would ask me for who I'm implicating and I'll send that to them. And they then said, well, no, they've got conflicts of interest with some of those people or their clients. Or they said this case is too complex. They didn't want to get involved. So my appeals for legal help fell on deaf ears. And now more recently, I've been asking for, for financial support. What I did was, I don't want to walk around with a, with a, with my hat in my hand. Um, and I, I need to be humble about that. But I got this fight ahead of me, but also other whistleblowers have got this fight ahead of them. So I created an institute at the beginning of this year. It's called the Institute of Social and Corporate Ethics. And through the institute, I want to begin to continue my advocacy, support other whistleblowers, and also, um, I think, conduct research into how we can fight the scourge. And that, that's where I've put out appeals, Ilsa, for funding for that institute. And I've got nothing. I've got a few individuals that give money which I've just given to other whistleblowers. I've been able to help two other whistleblowers, at least so far, who had more dire circumstances than me. What can we change in terms of laws? Or, or let me start here. Do we have proper whistleblower laws? From what I gather and hear from guys like you, we don't. There's nothing. There's nothing. There's the Protected Disclosures Act, which focuses on the protection of the disclosure, not the discloser. So it does not protect me as a whistleblower. It offers me absolutely no protection. So for someone who's being ostracized or harassed or intimidated by their employer, there's no protection. For people bullying you, there's no call, there's no legal recourse I have to any state institution to say you need to provide me with, with um, physical security. There's no way to call. There's no, there's no legal recourse I've got. So I think two broad things need to happen. The one is we do need to change the Protected Disclosure Act to incorporate things like penalties for companies or intimidating whistleblowers. We do need to have funding set up to support whistleblowers. So there's a lot of work going into actually uh, doing this. I know I've been part of a group who have submitted recommendations to the Zonda Commission already on how the laws can change. That's the one thing. The second thing I need, and it might come out of the first thing, is we need a whistleblower support agency. We need an agency which becomes the hub of all services whistleblowers need. So we can say to people who are thinking of blowing the whistle, before you do anything, call this number. You can get help on your rights, what risks you might face if you do blow the whistle, some support we can offer you to do, to do it properly. For those who have already blown the whistle, we offer you, again, your rights, risks, but then we can offer you counseling, give off you legal advice and financial advice and even finance. So behind this whistleblower support agency then sits all these organizations who are willing to provide pro bono services. Um, but the key thing is to bring it all together under one umbrella so that anyone who wants to blow the whistle knows, you know, call that number and that's where you get help. You have now already blown the whistle. We've spent almost an hour listening to your account of things. Will you still advise, despite everything that happened to you, will you still advise people to blow the whistle on corruption? And if they do, what must they first make sure of? Elsa, I think that's a difficult question because I feel on the one hand, 
it's irresponsible to encourage people to put their lives in danger if we as society provide no support and protection, because that's the reality right now, right? If you're encouraging someone to blow the whistle, you are encouraging them to put their lives in danger. And so I don't want that on my conscience. On the other hand, we will lose this battle of, of state capture if we don't have people stepping forward to blow the whistle. And so my advice would be to people to do it in a calculated way, make the assessment. So if you really want to blow the whistle today without the support, think about whether you've got some savings that will keep you going for six months or more. Think about how, what your real risk is, safety, um, legally, et cetera. So be a bit more intelligent about it. And if you feel you can weather the storm, then do it. But if you feel you can't weather the storm, I think ethically you should not do it until our society is ready to support you in doing that. Ethel, as a matter of interest, you mentioned earlier that you are a, or were a senior lecturer at UCT. Did you lose that job after you blew the whistle? I, I did. I did, Ilsa, much to my absolute shock. What had happened was I had asked UCT for, for some time to prepare my affidavit, to prepare my testimony. Um, you know, I, my, my affidavit was 700 pages long. So doing this without legal help, um, on my own, having to read hundreds of documents, I couldn't do that alongside all of my responsibilities mm. at UCT. So the first thing I asked them was um, to, get some, to get some leave in order to do that. They said they could give me the leave, but only if they didn't pay me. And again, it's at a time when you need <laughs> income the most. UCT said, go and do that, but we're not paying you. And, and so, again, in the interest of serving my country, I, I took unpaid leave to go and do it. Then I looked ahead, as I said earlier, I looked ahead for the lawsuits coming, all the difficulties coming. I went back to UCT and said, look, guys, when I look ahead, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this, the, the, all the duties um, of, a, of a senior lecturer. Can we discuss a, a new role for me, which would allow me to be at the university teaching, conducting research? but also allow me to defend myself um, from all the attacks that are coming. And that point, they then said, well, no, if you can't do your job, then you must leave. So they then suggested I resign. And for me, this was so devastating because I was actually walking the talk. I was a business ethics lecturer. I saw unethical behavior in our country. I spoke up and ex fully expecting the university to embrace me and support. And they did quite the opposite. They actually ostracized me. Um, and, and abandoned me. So much so that when I talk about this, they claim that I'm, I'm lying, right? I mean, UCT put out a public statement a few weeks ago, right? I've never seen any institution put out a statement attacking one individual the way they did. And in their statement, they basically said, I'm, I'm lying, that they fully support whistleblowers, they fully support um, the Zonda Commission, when I've got all the facts that says they did not support me at all. So. I think this happens often where companies talk about these things, right? They talk about supporting um, Zonda Commission and whistleblowers, but when it comes to it, they tend to push us aside. Are you currently unemployed? I am, yes. Um, I'm unemployed. I haven't been looking very hard because just the early indications are that people are less than enthusiastic, but I will change that uh, pretty soon. And tell me, um, Ethel, will you consider leaving South Africa? You've got international degrees, five international degrees. 
to go and seek a job elsewhere. I mean, this is the strange thing, Ilsa. You know, I can literally go and work anywhere in the world with the qualifications I've got and the experience I've got. I consciously chose to be here in South Africa because this is where I want to have a positive impact. I can go teach at Harvard or teach at Oxford and take my expertise to benefit those societies. I want to invest here, um, mm. but now I'm being pushed aside. And so just pragmatically, yes, I, I am going to consider that just so that I can work again and, and live in safety. Thank you so much for talking to us so candidly, Ethel Williams. Williams uh, is a whistleblower, former lit- lecturer at the University of Cape Town in business ethics, and one of the people that helped to get us to the truth regarding state capture and company involvement. I'm Ilse Salzwedel. You listened to a podcast brought to you by the organization Undoing Tax Abuse. If you like Outa's work, please consider donating to us by visiting our website at outa.co.za. You decide how much you want to contribute.